get started. No, I'm not prepared. I'm not either. Let's open in the word of prayer. Father, we just uh, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you that, that we can be in the house of worship. Thank you for your blessings. Pray for the day this morning as he brings us the, the message. And also for Bob this morning as, uh, as he leads us in worship. So thank you for your blessings. Thank you for a beautiful day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've, I've been requested to speak louder. I'm not sure if I can. I'll, I'll do my best, but a lot of times I I don't pay attention to myself. So. Anyway, so I'm not sure about volume control. Um, I thought we would start in Psalm 110 this morning. Last week we started in Psalm 2. And there's a reason why I'm picking these psalms, as I indicated last week. Both of them are referenced in the first chapter. But before we get started, um, I put, these are, this is Psalm 110, so we'll read through you in a second. I put Karen's phone number on the board. Uh, the reason I did that is because sometimes people have questions, but they either don't want to interrupt, or they think it's a dumb question, or they don't want to call attention to themselves. So, if you have a question, and you have a phone that can send text, you can send a text message of your question to Karen during the class, and she can ask the question this came up because, uh, actually in Hebrews, we're going to talk about a lot of really challenging theology. And anytime you talk about challenging theology, people think, I mean, it's a very common thing. People think, well, gee, this is a dumb question. I shouldn't ask this. This reveals my ignorance. I don't want to appear as ignorant. Well, a lot of people don't really uh, know a lot about Christian doctrine. And it's my hope to communicate that to you. So I want to encourage you to ask questions. So in addition to being able to text Karen, uh, maybe you're low-tech like me, and you just use one of these devices. Um, I've got a box here and some 3 by 5 cards. So what I'm going to pass these around, and I'm going to leave a stack here in front of Doug. And so what you do, you want me to pass this Yeah, you can pass this out, that's great. Everybody can have a card, you can use it as a bookmark, uh, you can throw it away, or you can write a question on it, and as you're slipping out the door, you can drop it in the box. So I, I want to make it easy for you guys to ask questions, and uh, I encourage you to ask questions, because I mean, that's what we're here for, is to learn. And uh, like I say, Hebrews is uh, a very fertile ground for understanding basic uh, Christian doctrine, and we want to give everybody the opportunity to get a get a handle on that. So I'm going to encourage you to do that. And uh, and the reason that this came up is because uh, some questions came up about the divinity and humanity of Christ last week, which is one of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And the reason it came up is because it's presented 
very plainly in the first chapter of Hebrews, and there's a reason for that. But let's go ahead and read Psalm 110. So you can just read it from in your favorite translation. I've got the New American Standard, I've got the NIV, I've got the New King James, I've got the Hebrew for those. <laughs> <laughs> So, they can all read long in the Hebrew here. Yeah. <laughs> now, in English you read left to right, in Hebrew you read right to left. Anyway, let, let's go ahead. So, would somebody like to read out Psalm 110 for us? Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. So when, a lot of times when I, I read through the Psalms, I come across the, uh, I guess I'll, I'll say the awesomeness of God. Uh, proclaimed, followed by the fearsomeness of God, and uh, the way that that I uh, I embrace this is when I was in Russia in a, a Russian morning in winter. Uh, you can imagine, you know, things are white and cold, and uh, I was in a, a landlocked. All of Russia's landlocked, but uh, a, a particularly cold place um, where it gets down sub-zero, and it was a particularly cold winter, one of the coldest on record. And I went out in the morning, and just as it was actually a warm day, it was right around zero. And, uh, an interesting thing happens in the atmosphere right around zero. At zero, the moisture in the air starts crystallizing out. And uh, having grown up in uh, one of the coldest places in this country, in Gunnison, Colorado, uh, which vies for the coldest temperature in the continental U.S., I understand zero and sub-zero temperatures. Usually I can tell when it gets to that temperature because if I breathe in through my nose, which I'm a nose breather, your nostrils stick together. Because what happens is, is that the moisture in the air freezes instantly. And as you get a little bit colder than that, they say you can spit and it'll freeze before it hits the ground. Which every kid has to try and see if it's true. <laughs> it is true. But when this moisture in the air is crystallizing out, um, it attaches to everything. It'll attach to branches and doorknobs and windows and benches and cars and whatever is in creation, it starts attaching to and it forms these elaborate crystal forms. And it is the most beautiful thing that you'll ever behold. In addition to having these just 
incredibly intricate uh, patterns of ice formations everywhere in this you know microscopic layer of, of uh, ice. Uh, it also crystallizes out in midair and it kind of suspends. And as the sun comes up through it, it looks like God took multicolored glitter and just spread it throughout the air and is suspended. And then used, they act like little prisms. And you see multiple colors, uh, like everything is glittered. It's just absolutely incredible. It is awesome. And the flip side, the fearsomeness of that is, is that if you stand there too long, you'll freeze to death. That's the way that being in the presence of God is. It is awesome. And his ferocity um, and passion is clearly displayed. And if you're on the wrong side of that, it's not happy. And you see that in the Psalms, like Psalm 110, where it says, He will shatter kings in the days of his wrath, and he will judge among the nations, and he will fill them with corpses. That's like strong language. And yet at the same time, the majesty of the Lord is shown in his ruling and in his judgment and his justice. And this Psalm 110 is um, one of the most quoted psalms in all of the Bible. It might be the most quoted psalm used in multiple places. And there's a reason for that. The reason why is because it displays uh, God as both transcendent, the God in heaven, and imminent. He's with us. He's Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. And that um, you actually see that in the NAU it says, the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord, only the first letter is capitalized, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And I'm going to take a second just to expand that one verse because we're going to read it again this morning. Um, if you look at it in the Hebrew, um, you have the proper name of God, and then you have uh, the uh, name of God that can be spoken, right? So, uh, get my thinking cap on here. Here's the proper name of God, right here, and. Then there's the name that can be spoken, which is Adonai. So this is Yahweh, and this is Adonai, the very first two words in this psalm. And it's the, uh, the particular grammar of this is forming a relationship between the two. The Lord says to my Lord. And what this is, is that the name of the Lord that cannot be spoken, the transcendent Lord, said to the name of the Lord that inhabits the earth, that is imminent and present among you, Adonai, um, says, I want you to sit at my right hand in place of power and authority until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a declaration of two parts of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. Yes? 
what did the, the, the Jews say about that relationship? Is it two gods? Well, they, they struggle with it in that um, they will never say the proper name of God. And, and these little points and dots around here, those are vowel uh, markings and that they don't exist in the, uh, the Hebrew as the language is constructed. These are added by the scribes so that people would be able to distinguish what the vowel sounds are. So that that's why they put them as points and dashes and dots because they don't want to corrupt the original consonants of the, the language. Well, this Yahweh here is, um, they would never speak it. In fact, if you read something uh, that's written about God, a lot of times they'll put G and then they'll put nothing else. Or they'll put the first letter and then they'll just have a blank. And the reason why is because they, they reverence God so much that they won't even speak his name. And yet, God intended his name to be spoken. So, when Moses met God at the burning bush, in the church, Moses said, who am I going to say sending me? God said, tell them, Yahweh, I am. It means uh, to be self-existent. The one who is self-existent, who has life within himself, sends you. Yahweh sends you. And the vowel markings here, I'm getting to your question, the vowel markings here are actually a form of the vowel markings in Adonai. And that, uh, that's how we get the pronunciation Yahweh is from the vowel markings of Adonai, which is the name of God that can be spoken, that is the, the Lord himself. So how do the Jews deal with this? They say, well, um, David is making a, a psalm about the majesty of God and his authority and rule. Um, but he uh, he's doing it in a way so that we can read this. That's what they would say. They wouldn't see a distinction of persons of the Godhead because to them, that's blasphemy. Right? And uh, what I would take you to is Matthew... So Jesus recognized this tension for the Jews. <coughs> if you go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, I'm going to read through the end. What happened was is that um, the teachers of the law and the religious leaders of the day wanted to ask Jesus lots of questions trying to trick him, right? Hopefully they would find him saying something that would be openly blasphemous or openly rebellious that would be a reason for them to take him into captivity and eventually put him to death. They wanted to shut him up. So they took their smartest guys, the top of their lawyer team, and they sent them to ask questions. Well, one of them actually asked a, a question, we see in verse 34, it says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's out of the uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we call it the Shema, Israel's uh, hero Israel. Uh, the Lord our God is one. And in that passage is where you find this, and that it's about reverencing the, the, the
the transcendent God, the creator of all. And he said, the second is like it, you shall uh, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So he's saying all of Revelation, remember last week we were talking about Revelation, and I said, uh, as we read through Hebrews, it said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his son. So all of Revelation, all of the law and the prophets is about this declaration of who God is and how we're to live. That makes sense? And so when Jesus said this, he just summed it up. He said, One of the two, uh, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The word Christ in Greek is Messiah. That's where the term Messiah comes from. Uh, they said to him, the son of David. Right? Because that's what Messiah is. We understand from 2 Samuel, our study in Samuel, it was about the king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who would reign among men as God. Right? The righteous king. So they said, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? He was questioning uh, how could God become man and what it means to be a son. That's why in the, the introduction in Hebrews, a lot is packed into that, that word, son, the name son. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more this morning. Well, when what Jesus was alluding to was... These two words, the Lord said to my Lord, and how God can actually become man and be fully man and fully God. And this is really hard for us to get our head around. In fact, it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. So the question that shut everybody up and this should not discourage you guys from asking questions. <laughs> the question that shut up those that were not believing, that did not want to come to the feet of God, was one about his divinity and his humanity. And that's why one of the primary characteristics of Christian cults today is how they challenge the divinity of Christ, Jesus. So this started very early on in a heresy that was was uh, stomped out in uh, 325 in Nicaea. It was a heresy by uh, a guy, Arius, and it is the very root of the heresy that we call Jehovah's Witness today. So this is a discussion that's been going on a long time. And it has to do with fundamental Christian doctrine. What we understand about who God is and what he's doing. And that's what Hebrews is about, by the way. Is who God is and what's he doing. If you were to break it into two focuses, two thematic uh, emphases, that would be it. Who is the Christ? And what is it that he is doing as an intercessor, as the one who is God and man? 
And that's what all of Hebrews is about. And then I would say the last part would be, how now shall we live? What do we do in light of the revelation that God has given us? And what you see in this sermon that the author of Hebrews put together is that he will continue to bring this forth. He will continue to bring forth who is God, what is he doing, now, what does that mean to you? What's the application for you in your life? And that's why when I, I put together the, the outline I did, I put double stars by what I call the warning passages. And we're actually leading up to a warning passage this morning. So last week, we did um, the introduction, the first four verses. So now that I've, I've given this lengthy introduction, I guess I should ask, are there any questions about that? Mitch asked you a question, took the 10 minutes to answer, but uh, does that make sense, where we're at? What did you learn from Hebrews last week? I kind of gave it to you. There is a, uh, the first four verses are essentially a single sentence. And that single sentence is the introduction for the whole of the sermon. It presents what he's going to talk about and how he's going to talk about it. And then from that point forward, which we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at verse 5 through uh, maybe verse 4 of chapter 2 you see the first point developed. But that introduction um, has two pieces. And I summed it up last week, I think, by God has spoken by the Son, or through the Son. So, God, very first word, I wonder if I can bring up Hebrews for you here. Let me do that. Oh, come on now. Uh, yeah, there should be some in there, and if we run out... Um, so if you didn't get an outline... Which Who is, hasn't gotten an outline? viewer here. Um, so I'll just instruct you to turn in your Bibles to uh, you can get it this way. Okay, there's Hebrews. Now let's see if I can bring it up here. There we go. Got one of them anyway. Um, to change this guy to Greek. Oh, 
that's fine. Like it is. We'll just leave it like that. Okay. So. Hebrews chapter one. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as, as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a name, or a more excellent name than they. And so one of the things that we're going to see as we move through, especially the first part of Hebrews, is this compare and contrast. We're going to see a, uh, an argument that goes from lesser to greater, so we're going to see, uh, as a, an argument is developed, you're going to see a development of a lesser point which everybody would agree to. So if the lesser is true, then certainly the greater is true. And we're going to see an extensive use of superlatives. We're going to see, um, in this case, more excellent. Um, we're going to see the word superior a lot. And the reason why is because it's pointing out who God is in human terms. Right? So we understand God is more excellent. He is not us. Right? So, uh, was it uh, Bill and Ted that used to say, excellent? Right? <laughs> well, God is more excellent. And so we're going to see that argument rolling uh, going forward. But what we see is that God is spoken by the Son, and that we see that that revelation, God has spoken, um, has to do with the past. Spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So he speaks through creation and he speaks through the prophets. So we talked about that last week. I gave some examples of God speaking through creation. Um, we call that general revelation. That that is available to everybody. And Paul uses that same argument in the, the book of Romans. If you go to the book of Romans and it's talking about the uh, non-superiorness of God, or the non-superiorness of man, excuse me, let's, uh, I'll just take you there. Romans chapter 1, it says that uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So, what I would say is that God's revelation, in many portions and in many ways, is evident to all, such that all are without excuse. If you don't get it, that there is a God, after studying science and creation then there's something wrong with your thinking. There's something wrong with your heart. Because the heart is what causes you to uh, develop the worldview that you do that would, that would throw God out. And so when I teach apologetics, we approach that. But he's spoken not just in a general revelation, but also in a specific revelation to the prophets. So what that means is that God didn't want us to get, get this wrong, get it messed up. So he actually spoke through different people. He revealed himself in a personal way. So 
So this is, a, this is different between watching a sunset that everybody watches and you see all of the beautiful colors and people from a wide range can look at that sunset and say, wow, isn't God awesome, right? Um, that's not personal. It's more corporate. It's more public. But God revealed himself personally to people throughout history. He either audibly spoke to them, like he did with Moses, speaking from a bush, or in some way the very words of God popped into people's heads and their hearts. And I know people in here have experienced that. How does God speak to you? In a small, still voice, right? Oftentimes. Sometimes he speaks through circumstances and events. But his personal revelation to man was recorded. We call that special revelation. So, revelation, God has spoken in the past through uh, general and special revelation, and in the present through his son. Because he wanted no mistake in the communication of who he is and what he's doing. So he sent part of the Godhead, he sent himself in the Son to humanity. And then we see certain attributes of the Son. He's appointed heir of all things. He made the world. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purification for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is an allusion to Psalm 110, right there. Um, and he is inherited, he's uh, much better than the angels, and he's inherited a more excellent name than they. So let me unpack that, which I did last week. I'll just give you the, the note, note parts here. Heir of all things means he's the owner. He owns it. Which is different than like if you lease a car, you know, and you fill out the paperwork and you put down your money. It seems like you put down your money, you should own it. But you don't own it. Somebody else owns it. The company owns it. You just have the privilege of driving it. Oh, Jesus is the owner. Christ, the Son, is the owner. He's not the leaseholder. And not only that, but... He's the one that through whom uh, the universe was made. So he's not only owner, he's creator. Um, he's the divine expression of God. He's the glory and very image or character of God <coughs> expressed perfectly to humanity. So he's the owner, the creator, the divine nature. He sustains all things by his authority. So he's a sustainer. He made purification for sins. So he's a redeemer. He's seated at the right hand. That means he has absolute authority. He is the ruler of all of creation. And that includes what's in heaven and on earth. And he has the greatest name, status, title, rank. We're going to unpack this more. What it means that he has a more excellent name than they. But what that means is that he has the <coughs> ultimate Authority. You ever wondered what the third commandment is about? Y'all know the Ten Commandments? I know you've heard there are ten of them. <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they have trouble putting them on, in public places these days. First commandment? Anybody know? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yeah, God first. Second commandment? 
Father, Mother, and Father. No idols. In other words, get, get your heart clear. God first, no idols. What's the third commandment? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's, that's really interesting. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? A lot of times we think that it's uh, an utterance that people make. And I won't repeat the utterance here. Um, but a lot of times, I remember, okay, I came from kind of a, a very interesting background. And, uh, and living on the street, you learn to speak like a sailor, and then you teach them how to speak. Uh, so in, in the course of that, um, I would take what the world thinks is the Lord's name in vain a lot. It was just part of every sentence. One day I was in a supermarket with the guy, and he knew that I had recently become a Christian, and, and uh, we were sitting there bagging the groceries, and I was just speaking in my common vernacular. And uh, he turned to me and he said, as I uttered this phrase, he said, gee, I hope God doesn't do that. I hope God doesn't. Damn, what's going on? And uh, it stopped me in my tracks. Because all of a sudden I realized that what I had made trivial was the very person of God in my life, which is everything that I have, right? I don't have much. I mean, you know, we can count what we own. We don't own that. And God reminds us of that when we go to visit Him, right? What I have is what He's given me. And all of a sudden I realized that I had made him empty, unimportant. That's the word vain. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't empty him of who he is. Right? It says that Jesus, the Christ, the Son, has inherited a more excellent name than they. That is, that he is the ultimate authority. He is the expression of divinity in your presence. That's a pretty powerful statement about who Christ is. And that's what the author of Hebrews is introducing. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about God's revelation of the Son. And this is who the Son is. Owner, creator, divine essence, sustainer, redeemer, ruler, and ultimate authority. Now he's going to start unpacking that for us. Because this should impact how we live. Just like it impacted me in the market that day, this should impact how we live when we get the revelation of God. Let's read it. It says... For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, by the way. Let me grab my notes here so I don't misquote. Um, Yep, Psalm 2, verse 7. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So that's uh, 2 Samuel 7, 14, which is the promise that God made to David that's recorded in Samuel that there would be a son I'll be a father to him and he shall be a son to me 
And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? I guess I don't have the whole, the whole of that up. Hopefully you are reading along in your translation as I read. What you see is that the author here is making uh, an argument to support the son's superiority. So he's clearly laid out the superiority of the son in his introduction. Who he is. Now he's going to start giving support for that. What do you suppose is the primary support that he would give? Not CNN. The, the Bible. That's right. He's quoting from Scripture um, quite a bit from the Psalms. So where he's quoted is Psalm 2, verse 7, 2 Samuel, verse 7, uh, or chapter 7, verse 14, Psalm 97, verse 7, Psalm 104, verse 4, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. So even though many times I characterize the Psalms as wisdom literature, which is a response of humanity to the revelation of God, part of that response is reciting that revelation. And that's what the author here is doing. He's citing the revelation of God about who he is, who the Son is. Um, we understand that the Son is superior in relationship. So the first um, argument that he makes is in verses 5 uh, and verse 5. He says, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. There's a relationship. Uh, he's clearly established as related to God um, through sonship. So when we read Psalm 2, I'll just I'll quickly read it to you. We read it last week, it's not very long Psalm 2, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So this is what the world does. They kick back against God and his, his uh, revelation. They, uh, they are against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, what God is laughing at is the futility of man's greatest works. 
the greatest thing that men can do is nothing compared to what God did in Christ. You know, today is Palm Sunday and we're going to celebrate that, right? God told that from the beginning. And it actually played out on March 30th, 33 AD. And we'll talk about dates later. <laughs> God spoke the end from the beginning. So when man comes to him and says, this is what we're going to do, God laughs. He said, I put my king, installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. Psalm 2, right? That's the, the argument from Scripture that the author is making. He's saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We have this relationship that is eternal. And I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. <coughs> Nobody in here can declare that kind of a relationship. At most, we can declare a relationship of a creature to the creator. Right? We come before God and worship, bowing down at his feet, not as a son, but as a rebellious creature. And in who he is, he forgives us. And he brings us into his family. It says that we are adopted as sons. We have no right as sons. But the Messiah, the Christ, has right as a son. He has true relationship. This is all about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, which in Psalm 110, and that's why this section ends with Psalm 110, is that relationship of the Lord said to my Lord, right? That there is one who is present with us, the Son, that is in fact God himself, that that relationship is superior. He goes, they didn't text me, I can give him the question next week. Okay. <laughs> but someone did ask if you could put your outline and then you maybe support your documents online somewhere. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. We can do that. Yep. So, uh, and I'll establish that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll set it up and we'll get it out next week to you all. We're just figuring out this computer stuff, which is not really true because I've been doing it my whole life. But uh, we uh, we are on UStream now on our Friday night study. So if you're bored on a Friday night and you want to turn on the channel Study with Dave, I think it is, or Study the Bible with Dave or something like that. Anyway, going through Revelation. So we are actually connected to the modern age. <laughs> and I will get the, uh, the outline. Uh, so what we see is that the son is superior in relationship. The next case that he makes is that the son is superior in ministry. And he quotes uh, Psalm 97. He says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Um, so what, what we're seeing 
is that he's showing that there is a superiority in ministry. And that, what are angels? Everybody has, I mean, these days, if you haven't heard the word angel, you probably haven't been connected to media in any way. What is an angel? What do we know about angels? Messengers. The, the, the name actually means messenger. Right? So when we read about the angels to the churches in Revelation, it's talking about the messengers to the churches, maybe the pastors. But in this case, it's not talking about pastors. Paul said they're mediators, right? Mm-hmm. They're uh, creatures that God created that are not like us. They're not human. But they their purpose is to serve. Verse 14. Mm-hmm. They are, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So we think of angels in, in the sense of protecting um, probably more often than not, right? So um, what was the show on television called? Touched by an Angel. What was that show about? About being delivered in some way. Um, who does the delivering in God's kingdom? Jesus. Yeah, God does. Um, messenger is to bring the message. That doesn't mean that he doesn't also bring the authority of that message with him, which he does sometimes. And we understand that like when we read through Daniel and the uh, angelic messengers that were present there. But an angel is a minister. They're there to serve and it's saying the Son is a much greater minister, has a greater um, service than just proclaiming that which God sent him to proclaim, but he actually has the, the, uh, the authority to accomplish that which God designed to be accomplished. So when Jesus went forth at Calvary and he died in our place and took our sins upon him, he actually accomplished Salvation. No angel can do that. And yet that was the greatest service that could ever be done for us. When you think about it. He made purification of sins. He has a superior ministry. He also is superior in his eternal being. We read that um, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. I actually jumped past where I was. I should have started reading in... Uh, verse 9, verse 8. Uh, Your throne of God is forever, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So what's being established here? So that the author of Hebrews, he's trying to show who the Son is, that he has a superior relationship, that he has a superior ministry, and he has a superior essence, a superior being. 
right? And that he is eternal. There is no end to the Son. We know that when we read John chapter 1, right? We know that when we read uh, Philippians chapter 2, or when we read Colossians chapter 1, right? Repeated throughout the Bible, we see these truths displayed over and over and over again about the eternal nature of the Son. So what, what do we make of all this? He, he concludes by saying, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Christ is superior to the, to the angels. He has a position of authority that is greater than all. That's why we need to read um, with awe the next four verses. It says, For this reason, for the reason that's already been established about Christ's superiority over created beings in heaven. He's going to talk about superiority over created beings on earth next. But he's created beings in heaven, the angels, Christ is superior. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, I'm going to come back to drift away. Because clearly the author is he's piling on so much evidence that it's it's stupid for us to say, How can this be? Right? I haven't heard. I don't understand. Is Christ risen? Absolutely. Is there scientific and empirical evidence for that? Yes, there is. Is there eyewitness testimony to that? Yes, there is. Is there biblical, prophetical evidence for that? Yes, there is. So, the evidence of the revelation of God in His person, the Son, is so overwhelming that we need to pay close attention to that. Because if we don't, we are neglecting a great salvation. And that we can expect the... the uh, the terror that would come with neglecting salvation. One of the things I would say is that you see how this occurs. So the author here wants to understand, because he's writing to Christians, right? And you think, well, Christians clearly got this message. They understand Christian doctrine. They understand who Christ is. They don't ever take the name of the Lord in vain. Right? For this reason, we want to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That idea of drifting away is, uh, this is how people get into a situation where they're, they don't have uh, a life in Christ. If you ever wonder what it means to be in Christ, we're going to find that out. Well, if you're in Christ and you're walking with Christ, it is possible to drift away. We'll talk about that more. I plant these bombs right before we walk out the door. But what is drifting away? How would you how would you describe drifting away? Like uh, 
Pardon? Like being the seed in the thorn patch around the rocks, like out of the parable? Kind of? Uh, or just not spending any time in the Word or, or in prayer and slowly the world um, and people talking and everything you hear eventually piles up around you to where you start getting misperceptions and then those start ruling how you think? Yeah. So by not paying attention, by not heeding, paying close attention to what we've heard, um, it's like a boat that is out on the ocean and it's not anchored to anything. The wind comes up and it starts pushing it one way. The other wind comes up and it starts pushing it another way. Um, a current comes up and it carries it along. That's the way the world works. The world, that uh, attack of the enemy is designed to cause you to drift away. That's what he wants to do. And what the author is saying is, pay attention to what God is saying so that you don't drift away. So the cure for drifting is listening. It's more than that. It's actually applying. Because I'll just say that. I should probably look at my notes and make sure I haven't missed anything here. What you see is uh, an argument that is set up by the author showing the supremacy of God or of, of the Son over uh, angelic creatures. He's, and he shows that if he's superior over angelic creatures, clearly he's superior to us. Right? So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And that if the, uh, the condemnation of the angels occurred because they turned away from the revelation of God, and there were angels that turned against God. Right? Where did the demons come from? Who was the devil? They're angels. They're created beings that had their abode in heaven and that they rebelled against God. They turned away. And what is the end of the angels? Well, we read about it in the end of Revelation where there's a lake of fire and death and Hades and Satan and the beast are all cast into the lake of fire. There is a second death. And that those angels are destroyed. So, if they can't escape, what happens if we escape? Or, what happens if we neglect this great salvation? Can we escape? So the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If they can't escape, God is superior to them. Uh, we can't escape. God is clearly superior to us. So we need to pay attention to this message of salvation. That's the first of five warning passages. And that he supports it by saying, God has testified both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Um, and I would point out that's according to his own will. So people will see different um, forms of evidence that Jesus is real. And everybody in here has a story. And what we're going through this week 
is the salvation story. The story of God actually making it possible for us to be redeemed and accomplishing that re redemption. And at the end of that redemption, what Jesus did is he ascended into heaven. And he's now um, at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the story that we hear this week. And it's more than just a story. It's a reality. And God has revealed that to us according to his Holy Spirit in his own way to each one of us individually. We need to pay attention to that. We need to tell others about that. So there's an evangelistic message in here as well. Let's go ahead and stop here. Um, there's probably a lot more than I can say. But... Drift is a passive activity. Um, yeah. Let's go ahead and end there. Well, Lord, um, you challenge us through your word, both telling us who you are, that we should pay attention to that, that, Lord, uh, what you've done for us is uh, beyond anything that we could comprehend or anything that we could have ever imagined was possible in being separated from you, that you made a way for us to be uh, redeemed, to be adopted, to become citizens in your kingdom, and that that's through your Son. Lord, uh, as we wrestle with the issues of uh, who the Son is, who Christ is, who Jesus is, just ask that you would open our eyes through uh, Hebrews, Help us to hear what you're speaking to us, that we can uh, heed these warnings and uh, live accordingly. And Lord, the first warning is uh, to believe that we should not uh, we should not ignore such great truth and revelation, but that we should believe and that we should live like it. Lord, help us to do that this week. Lord, we ask that you would be with Bob this morning as he. Uh, presents the message that you've given him, message of your powerful work that you've done for us. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would give him every word uh, that he speaks, that it would be your word that comes out of his mouth, that we would be able to put ourselves aside for your work, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just ask for your protection, ask that you keep us uh, until next week uh, and throughout this week. I thank you for your provision, Lord, and your incredible service to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this in your name.